Hello and welcome to the History of the Germans, episode 12, the Regency of Theophanu and Adelheid. Just a bit of housekeeping first. You may have noticed that this episode did not hit your inbox on the customary Thursday. That's basically because I've just left my job and had to do quite a bit of admin to bet everything down. It is quite remarkable how much time one can waste with these things, or how much time putting together this podcast actually consumes. In any event, the next episode will come on a Thursday, albeit that will be Thursday the 15th of April. As Easter and the easing of lockdown means we can spend some more time with friends and family. And I'm sorry to deprive you of podcast listening pleasure over the holidays, but let's take your earphones out for a while and talk to your children, your parents, your grandparents, your aunts, your uncles, your cousins twice removed, your friends, your acquaintances, your work colleagues, your gym bodies, your baristas. Oh, don't we miss it all. Back to the show. Last week, little King Otto III was rescued from the clutches of the kind of cousin twice removed you don't want to talk to, Henry the Quarlson. Members of the Ott rescue squad namely his mother Theophano, his grandmother Adelheid and Archbishop Willigis of Mainz, now formed the Regency Council that will run the country for the next 11 years. Theophano will be in charge from 984 to 991, when she dies at only 40 years of age. Adelheid will then take over for the remaining roughly four years, when Otto III gradually comes into his maturity and takes over control of the kingdom. Saving the four-year-old king and gaining the Regency over the kingdom was no mean feat, but it did not solve the fundamental problems of the kingdom. If you have listened to all 12 episodes so far, you are now quite familiar with the main objectives of any German ruler of the time, which are a. holding on to the Duchy of Lothringia, b. secure the eastern border and expand where possible, 3. establish a sustainable rule in northern Italy, 4. keep control of the papacy, and 5. hold down the powerful dukes, counts, barons and their extended clans. Having five often conflicting policy objectives at the same time condemned the Kaisers to a perennial game of whack-a-mole. If he spends too much time down in Italy trying to establish control there and organizing the papacy, he risks his magnates going AWOL, the King of France nibbling away at Lothringia and the Slavs throwing off their chains. If he pushes hard on the eastward expansion, the local magnates tend to pick up the spoils, making them more powerful, whilst back down in Rome, the population cuts off the noses and ears of the Kaiser's envoys. And that is why, in the 30 years since Otto the Great's marriage to Adelheid, our two emperors have been frantically rushing back and forth across the Alps without a moment of rest. What makes the next 11 years of the regency of Theophano and later Adelheid such an achievement is that pretty much nothing bad happened. There may be a painful state of affairs for historians and podcasters, but great news for peasants who do not have to endure constant raiding and pillaging. The way the Imperial Regency achieves this relative calm has some element of luck in it, but it also down to a coherent policy of the two Imperial ladies. When I talk about policy, this is not a policy in the modern sense, with white papers developed by think tanks, ministerial working groups and discussions in cabinet, let alone a debate in parliament. A lot of it is created on the hoof and by trial and error. But the absence of policy documents and the vagueness of stated objectives does not mean that rulers in the Middle Ages acted purely on impulse or to achieve short-term goals. There are things that are known to work, and which imperial policy reverts to again and again. Each imperial administration differs in the way they deploy or deviate from these basic policy approaches, 
But when I look at Teofano and Adelheid, I find their choices smarter than most, which makes the positive outcome of the Regency more than just a function of luck. Now let us look at their approach in more detail, starting with policy objective number one, holding on to the Duchy of Lothringia. The question which bits of the old kingdom of Lothar belong to France and which bits belong to Germany is a perennial source of conflict that was only really put to bed in 1945. During the regency of Theophano and Adelheid, Lothringian question was a particularly hot topic for the following reasons. A. King Lothar of France had been brought up by his father and his mother with the explicit objective of getting Lothringia back. His mother was the wife of Gilbert, the former Duke of Lothringia had drowned at Andernach, and his father named him Lothair after Lothair who created Lothringia. B. King Lothair's archenemy was his brother Charles. Charles had accused Lothair's wife Emma of adultery with the Bishop of Laon. When she was acquitted by a synod of bishops, Charles had been sent into exile. Otto II then threw oil on the fire by making Charles the Duke of Lower Lothringia, at which point the red mist came down in front of Lothair's eyes. He took his forces to Aachen, almost caught the imperial couple and occupied the capital of Charlemagne for a few days. And finally, C. Lothair had managed to occupy Verdun in 984, when everybody else was busy chasing Henry the Quarrelsome round the place. Verdun was and remained for almost a thousand years a key psychological border town between France and Germany. Those of you who have read far ahead may remember that the longest battle of World War I was fought around Verdun, and that it is the original place where a bearded guy shouted, They shall not pass! Though that was said in French at the time, and not by a guy whose future acts left him in good stead in French history. Verdun also became the place where one of the most famous images of Franco-German reconciliation was taken in 1984. François Mitterrand and Helmut Kohl spontaneously holding hands in front of the Memorial of the Fallen. I digress, massively. In 984, Verdun had not yet become a symbol, but was simply an important border city and fortress with a slightly dodgy side hustle in producing eunuchs for the courts of Constantinople and Cordoba. But nevertheless, Teofano and the Regency Council needed to get it back. In September 984, the Regency mobilizes the loyal magnates of Lothringia to make an attempt at reconquering the town, which they seem to have managed by October. Lothar came back in January 985, this time with a large army, allegedly comprising 10,000 men. They surprised the occupiers and managed to capture them. Amongst the captured were the leaders of the Ottonian party in Lothringia, namely the Duke of Upper Lothringia, the Count and the Bishop of Verdun, as well as others. These guys are then distributed across the different fortresses held by the supporters of King Lothar. We are not off to a good start here. The established Ottonian policy towards France was to exploit the constant squabbles between the king and his magnates, in particular between the king and his largest vassal, Hugh Capet. These squabbles were practically eternal, because their resources were roughly evenly matched and they each held almost impregnable fortresses. Hugh Capet had Paris, and specifically the Ile de la Cité, which is the island surrounded by the Seine River on all sides. The king held Laon, 
which sits atop a solitary hill with 100 meter high sheer cliff faces. Next time you drive down the Autoroute des Anglais, look to your right halfway between Calais and Reims and you will see what the French call the Montagne Couronne, the crowned mountain. Theophanou's policy follows in the same vein. After the capture of the defenders of Verdun, she prods UKP to intervene. UKP disrupts a major gathering of Lothar's supporters by force, which stalls further aggression from the French king. Theophanou then benefits from the last Carolingian monarchs in France going into self-destruct mode. King Lothar died in 986, and his wife Emma becomes regent. Emma is swiftly put aside by her son Louis V, who warms up the allegations of adultery. That conflict between mother and son paralyzes the kings of France politically until Louis V succumbs to a hunting accident. After Louis' death, the time is ripe for the last real change in the reigning dynasty of France. In 987, Hugh is elected king of France. That now causes a problem for Théophano. She urgently needs a challenger to the French king who re-establishes the previous internal divisions in the kingdom. Fortunately, one is at hand. Charles of Lower Lothringia. As brother to the before last king, he considers himself to be the heir to the kingdom. Since Charles is her vassal, he can expect some support from her against UKP, making the two sides evenly matched. Charles is surprisingly successful in this war and gets hold of Laon and even the most prestigious archdiocese of France, Reims. UKP makes multiple attempts to storm Laon, but without success. Theophano now has the French where she wants them to be. UKP and Charles of Lothringia are beating each other over the head for several years, a period during which Theophano gets Verdun back and the prisoners are released. The conflict ends when the Bishop of Laon feigns a reconciliation with Charles. How Charles could believe that the man he accused of adultery would ever come round to his side is another one of these 10th century things we struggle to understand. Anyway, the bishop clearly had not found a great affection for Charles and led UKP's troops into the otherwise impregnable fortress of Laon, where Charles is captured. Charles dies a year later in prison. As a consequence, by 991, UKP now controls both his own land and the Carolingian crown lands making him a more powerful French king than his predecessor. Since Theophano had died in 991, this becomes Adelheid's problem. The fact that the French king is now stronger than before is offset by the fact that the Capitans are less obsessed with Lothringia compared to the Carolingians. All Adelheid can do is keeping a level of unhelpful interference in a fierce dispute over who is the legitimate Archbishop of Reims. UKP dies in 995 and his son Robert II takes over. Under Robert II, French policy changes focus towards increasing the domestic holdings of the Capet family at the expense of their powerful magnates, the Dukes of Normandy, the Dukes of Aquitaine and Burgundy, the Counts of Flanders and Provence, and anyone else who was either weak or had a daughter with a sizable dowry. With this, the Regency has achieved its main objectives regaining Verdun and safeguarding the Duchy of Lothringia. Objective 2 is managing the eastern border. When Teofano took over in 984, the eastern border barely held together. 
The Slavs living between the Elbe and the Oder rivers had flattened the Christian towns and churches in a major uprising in 983, massacred or thrown out whatever military forces occupied their land, and could just about been stopped from crossing into core Saxon territory by an emergency force. Ensuring the integrity of the Saxon lands was probably the number one objective of the Regency. To do that, there were multiple policy options, which breaks down into two questions. The first choice is whether to actually conquer the territory and Christianize the people in it, or to just forward defend the home territory. The second choice is who to ally with. Under Arthur the Great, the policy was very clearly aimed at conquering the land and converting the local populace. Otto the Great founded towns and established bishoprics in the lands east of the Elbe River. His general, Markgraf Gero, converted the locals with fire and sword. Under Otto II, this system collapsed virtually overnight, when the Slavs sensed the weakening of the imperial power after the defeat of Capocolona. Under the regency of Teofano and later Adelheid, the imperial policy seemed to have changed. Though they invaded in regular intervals and at one point reoccupied the town of Brandenburg, there was no attempt at establishing a permanent presence east of the Elbe. That suggests the objective was to create a deterrent and go for loot and enforce tribute. Now once the choice is made to store rather than conquer the lands of the Slavs, there are multiple options to join forces with other powers in the region. Now the Danes can be ruled out, in part because they have reverted back to paganism after Swain Forkbeard had his father Harold Bluetooth killed, and furthermore Swain and his more famous son Knut were keener on England than on Slavic lands. The other power in the region were the Bohemians. They were vassals of the empire and as such should support the regency. However, Duke Bolle's love of Bohemia had sided forcefully with Henry the Quarrelsome and captured the Saxon county of Meissen in the process, and that had put him into collision course with Teofano and Adelheid. And hence, the Poles were in poor position. Poland is geographically ideal for a policy of containment. They occupy the lands to the east of the pagan Slavs. Furthermore, Poland had become Christian in 966 through missionary conviction rather than blood and steel, which seems to have been more sustainable. The Polish dukes had been involved in the Holy Roman Empire since then, and the Duke Mieszko had attended several royal assemblies. He had sided with Henry the Quarrelsome in 984, but was not as committed as his neighbour to the south, Boleslav of Bohemia, making that easier to overlook. So, Poland was chosen to be the ally. When Otto III was six years old, he was sent to fight the Slavs in a joint operation with the Dukes of Poland. How much fighting he did himself is doubtful, but the Duke of Poland gave him a camel for his bravery. The fascinating thing about this story is that nobody asked by which route that camel had managed to get to Poland in the first place. The politically more significant move came in 991, when the Duke of Poland gives his lands to the Pope. What that means is not so much that the Duke of Poland now becomes a vassal of the Pope and has to send him troops or taxes. The most significant effect is that from now on the Archbishop of Magdeburg, who may have believed Poland to be part of his diocese, to lose his rights in the area. The Duke of Poland is unlikely to have done this without agreement with the Empress and the Archbishop of Magdeburg. Mieszko had met with Teofano just months earlier in Quedlinburg, suggesting that the move had been discussed. 
we also see no mention of any adverse reaction from the German side, or contraire, the joint operations against the Slavs continue. The policy of supporting the Duke of Poland as a friend of the empire rather than as a vassal, like the Duke of Bohemia, will continue and even intensify under Otto III. It is a major fork in the road for Poland, and this document, the Dogome Judex, is the foundation document of Poland. In many ways, the decision by Theophano and Adelheid may be the most significant of their reign. In the future, the policy towards the East in general, and Poland in particular, will become a key differentiator between different emperors. But whichever policy they pursued, Poland is never integrated into the Roman Empire, whilst Bohemia is. The next major policy objective is number three, keeping control of northern Italy. You may remember that one of Otto II's flagship policies was to integrate the kingdoms of Italy and Germany. Otto II himself became first king of the Germans by election of the German nobles and coronation in Aachen by German archbishops. At a later stage, he was elected king of Italy by Italian nobles and then consecrated in Pavia by an Italian archbishop. Otto III, on the other hand, was elected by both Italian and German nobles and was crowned by both German and Italian archbishops in the same ceremony. The idea was to create one source of legitimacy for one unified kingdom. This legitimacy seems to have held out because when Otto III finally gets to Pavia in 996, he is not specifically crowned as king of Italy, but the nobles just repeat the allegiance they have already sworn in 983. To manage Italy, Theophano started by doing the smartest thing she could do. She asked her mother-in-law, Adelheid, who had been Queen of Italy since she was 15, who knew everybody and who owned vast tracts of land in Italy to run the country for her grandson. There's not much documentary evidence of her rule in Italy, but if we look at the end result, Adelheid must have done a great job. When Otto II died, Italy was convulsed by uprisings of the anti-Ottonian party. Supporters of the Ottonians, like Pope John XIV and Gerbert of Aurillac, were in fear of their life or even lost it. Adelheid arrived in 985 and can relatively quickly put Ottonian supporters back into their former positions. One of the pillars of Ottonian rule was Hugh of Tuscany, who ruled not just Tuscany but also the southern duchy of Spoleto. Hugh was exactly what the Ottonians wanted, an Italian magnate who was integrated into the imperial policy. He was regularly seen at court in Germany, he was even there when Theophano died. He built himself a palace near the imperial Pfalz in Ingelheim and in most aspects acted like a Duke of Bavaria or Duke of Swabia. Theophano stayed out of Adelheid's way at least until 988 when she makes one of her Greek advisers, Johannes Philagotos, Archbishop of Piacenza and Chancellor of the Kingdom of Italy. In 989 she decides to travel to Italy and further on to Rome. This is the one moment where the two empresses have a serious policy disagreement. So far they seem to have been able to stay out of each other's way without major clashes. In Italy that may have been more problematic. Johannes Philagothos was not very popular and his judgments were considered harsh. Adelheid may have tried to mellow things down whilst she was in Pavia, but when Theophano travelled through Pavia, Adelheid made sure she was out of town, leaving Philogathus free reign. 
Adelheid's first act after she had taken over from Teofano was to sack Johannes Philagothus, who barely managed to get back to Germany alive. After that interlude, Italy held together fine, even after Adelheid returned north of the Alps to take over the Regency. Which gets us to part four, controlling the papacy. Policy towards the papacy breaks down into two separate components. On the one hand, there is the control of the papal states, the city of Rome, and the person of the Pope, which is what preoccupied us so far. The Pope, however, has another side to his power, which is the moral and spiritual leadership. The reason it did not matter was that there was no real moral superiority. The Pope may be the vicar of Christ by virtue of his office, but these last few popes had little, if any, personal qualities that made them suitable to lead Christendom in prayer. One of those was anti-Pope Boniface VII, who had returned from Byzantium shortly after Otto II's death and proceeded to kill his predecessor, Benedict VII, making him one of the few popes who killed not just one, but two popes. Boniface lasted for just 11 months, but quickly became isolated and abandoned by his Crescenti supporters. It has been assumed that he was either assassinated or may even have committed the ultimate sin of suicide. So hated was he that after his death, men cut and pierced his body with spears, then dragged it, stripped and naked, by the feet to the Campus Martius and threw the corpse on the ground before the feet of the horse of Constantine, i.e. the statue of Marcus Aurelius. The next morning, some more compassionate monks found the body parts and buried them. After that, Rome went a bit mad for about a month, as the Crescenti failed to get control over the situation. It seems they had to ultimately accept a new pope, John XV, who was a Roman but from a rival faction of the aristocracy. John XV held out for 11 years, which is pretty much a record for the times. He pursued a policy of balancing the local crescenti and the imperial forces. John XV was hated due to his avarice and general meanness, but in moral and spiritual terms, he was a major step up from his predecessors, which may explain his longevity. Teofano travelled to Rome in 989 to pray at her husband's grave, a luxury she did not enjoy in the tumultuous days of December 983. Her present re-established some control over the papacy, albeit not so tight to provoke a crescenti rebellion. Some historians have suggested that Teofano's trip to Rome was aimed at a resurrection of her late husband's policy of bringing southern Italy under Ottonian rule. That is based on just one document issued in Rome relating to a monastery in the south. Quite frankly, that is fairly thin evidence. Last time I had checked, her husband took the largest army ever seen to pursue his dream. Teofano travelled just with a personal bodyguard. After Teofano's death, Adelheid did not interfere significantly in Roman affairs. When Pope John XV finally gets into hot water with the Crescenti and asks the imperial leadership for help, it is Otto III himself who musters an army to do what emperors have now been doing for a while. Go to Rome, get crowned, get out. For now, all that matters is control of Rome. The moral superiority still resides with the emperor. And finally, policy number five, keeping control of the magnates in Germany. 
There is nothing to report. No uprisings, no grumblings, no disobedience. Nothing. Which is probably the best rate card you can get. Henry the Quarrelsome seems to have been a regular presence at court, supporting the new regime. When he died a few years later in 995, he is supposed to have told his son, also called Henry, that he should never oppose his king and lord, something he had regretted ever doing. Interestingly, apart from Henry of Bavaria, we hear very little about the other dukes. That might be down to the fact that monasteries are better at retaining documents and most chroniclers are churchmen. But it is still noticeable that when we hear of great assemblies, most of the named attendants are bishops, whilst under Otto the Great, the emphasis was on the temporal rulers. This is also the time when we first hear that a whole county is given to a bishop, making him a real prince-bishop. The lack of documentation on the duchies is so severe that we are not exactly sure who was Duke of Carinthia at certain points in time, and Carinthia is one of only six duchies. The imperial church system is clearly expanding at a rapid pace during the Regency. What further accelerates the trend is the growing importance of the reform monasteries. Reform monasteries came about because discipline in monasteries had become lax, as it did ever so often. The most important reform monastery in the period was Cluny. Cluny was founded in 910 in Burgundy. By the 990s, it has become a spiritual superpower. Thanks to their ascetic life, their care for the poor, their regular prayers and their celibacy, the monks of Cluny became the members of the church, lay people, both aristocratic and peasant, looked up to. And furthermore, Cluny had the privilege to found daughter monasteries that reported back to Cluny. So by the end of the 12th century, there were nearly a thousand of these daughter monasteries that were tied to the abbot of Cluny. These reform monasteries sit at the heart of the more and more intense piety that will dominate the high Middle Ages and drive the Crusades, as well as the recovery of papal authority. Adelheid specifically was a huge supporter of Cluny. She founded several daughter abbeys, including the Abbey of Seltz in Alsace. Supporting the reform of the church is a double-edged sword for the imperial system. A chunk of the authority the Kaiser exerts stems from his moral authority as the anointed quasi-religious leader. That authority is heightened when it's held against the profoundly corrupt papacy and lazy monks. As the church implements reforms and grows its moral authority, the moral authority of the Kaiser diminishes, at least in relative terms. And that results in some sort of religious arms race, where the temporal rulers try to outpace their abbots and bishops and even the Pope in displays of extreme devotion. You will get what I mean when we get to Otto III in the next episode. The last but no means least significant act of the Regency in domestic politics was an economic one. I already mentioned that the Ottonians benefited from a combination of improving climate and loosening of the rules of servitude. That created a surplus of agricultural products, which in turn drove the creation of markets and trade. What turbocharged these trends was the increase in the production of small silver pennies, the Adelheid and Otto penny. Adelheid increased the production of silver in the mines near Goslar, and that increased availability of coin must have hugely facilitated the exchange of day-to-day -day goods. 
her coins were minted for another 100 years and are the most commonly found coins of the 10th and early 11th century. Teofano died in Nimwegen in 991, when Otto III was just 11 years old. She is buried in St. Pantaleon in Cologne, one of the few churches from that period that are still standing. If you go to Cologne, don't waste your time staring at the western facade of the dome, which is a pastiche from the 19th century. Go around three blocks and look at St. Pantaleon, whose facade is largely unchanged since 980 AD, and take a look at Teofano's modest grave. Her biography remains one of the most astounding of the 10th century. Born and brought up at the sophisticated Byzantine imperial court, then sent to the Ottonian court with a 50-50 chance of being buried in a monastery or being married to the heir of the throne. Finally, ruling the empire together with her husband for 10 years and then taking sole control as guardian for her son for another successful seven years. Teofano has forever animated German imagination and views have shifted back and forth between genius politician and hapless puppet of the main courtiers. I personally do not think she was a genius, but that she had a lot of common sense and charm. She chose to continue policies that had proven to work and changed those that had not. That is more than one can say about many of her successes up to the present day. When Teofano died, the situation could have easily gone out of hand again, but luckily Otto's grandmother Adelheid stepped up to the guardianship. You remember that Adelheid kept a low profile these last few years, but had remained close to the court and her grandson, so that the transition went comparatively smoothly. Adelheid's effective rule lasted just three years, as Otto III was considered of age around 14. When Otto III was declared of age at the Royal Assembly in Solingen in 994, Adelheid gradually retired from high politics. The official end of her guardianship came with the coronation of Otto III in Rome in 996. She then enters a monastery in Zelz in Alsace, which she had founded in 991. She died on December 16, 999, at the age of 68. Adelheid was one of the most remarkable female figures in early medieval history, of which there are a lot more than one would think. She had been incarcerated and probably tortured by Berenga, but managed to escape and rose to become empress. For nearly 40 years she played a decisive role in shaping one of the key axes of medieval German politics, the link between Italy and Germany. She brings the Italian crown into the Ottonian family and, through her contacts and relationships, makes it possible for the regime to endure. Whether the orientation towards Italy has been a good or a bad thing for the development of Germany is an endless debate, but that it was usually important, nobody can deny. Her significance to the Abbey of Cluny and his reform program was such that Abbot Odilo of Cluny, who we'll meet again soon, wrote her autobiography shortly after her death. He paints her as a saintly figure who triumphs over adversity because of her faith and good deeds. In 1047, she was canonized by Pope Urban II and her grave in Zelts became a place of pilgrimage. Her monastery at Zelts has disappeared in the Reformation and her remains may have been transferred to the parish church of Zelts. That church was heavily damaged in the Second World War and then rebuilt in the 1950s 
in what many may not believe the greatest of taste. Her grave is now lost, and even though Fiesta Turismo of Celts hardly mentions her. Next time, we will dive into Otto III, the great what-if of German medieval history. He continues many of his mother's policies, but will make some audacious moves towards what might have been a very different medieval world. A world that never materialized. I hope you're going to join us, and if you enjoyed this episode, let your friends know on social media, or on that old-fashioned way, talking, now that we are allowed to do that again. <laughs>